And uh, this business about Nikki, uh, I, this has grown in, in the last year about Nikki not playing bass. Bullshit. He played every note. An all new episode of The Jeremy White Show. Available wherever you stream. Our next guest is one of the most iconic rock and roll producers of the 80s, future rock and roll Hall of Famer, if I have anything to say about it. Uh, his brand new book. Turn it up. My time making hit records in the glory days of rock music is coming out in November. You can pre-order it now wherever you get your books. Welcome to the show for the first time. The one, the only, Mr. <laughs> Producer himself, Tom Werman. Oh, that's the best intro I've ever had anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Thank that you. made my day. Tom Werman said I, I was good today, so I, I'll take that. Okay. That's <laughs> so, great. Well, it's so great to meet you. I got to tell you. Um, I'm 29 years old, and I don't say that often, but you you pretty much wow. were you pretty much helped soundtrack so many people's high school years, but more importantly, mine as well, because I was getting to a lot of those bands that you helped create essentially at that time during my time. Yes, I got um, a, I got a cat here. Oh, nice. Okay, there you go. Did, did you ever have pets in the studio back in the day, as opposed to this instead of the artists? <laughs> No, just some other animals. <laughs> I was going to say, those must have been some pretty wild times, like being in the studio at at the height of all the madness of the 80s. Like, yeah, um, it was it, you know, it it wasn't as bad as uh, as as some people might uh, might think, uh, but it wasn't easy uh, all the time. Um, you know, there was, a there was a little bit of hard drug in there and, um, but, but really we managed to, uh, to make good records without any, uh, real tragedy, you know, right. uh, I mean, Motley Crue had a couple of run-ins, a couple of serious run-ins, but, um, again, we got, we got three records out of it that were, uh, you know, that were, I think were very good. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, of course, Motley Crue, it's been well documented, Nikki, through the heroin diaries and the dirt, that they were all pretty fucked up at the time. Like, yep. now, do you think that had they have been sober, do you think they would have gotten those songs? Do you think Nikki would have been able to write Girls, Girls, Girls and Wild Side and Shout the Devil? Like, do you, or do you think that was a product of substance to a certain extent? Well, you know, not, I, I'm not familiar with heroin. Um, Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> I am familiar. I am familiar with cocaine, right. and uh, same here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I think that uh, I don't think I don't think heroin uh, use would um, would promote creativity. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes cocaine might, but I don't know. Uh, it, it, you know, in what shape he was when he was writing those songs. Um, you know, he managed to write good songs for quite for, for 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 like at least five years there, right? Um, and and uh, I, I I don't see the the only um, the only problem I think that he had <clears throat> in writing songs was time, because after shout, um, you know, they had to go into the studio very quickly. And get this album done, Theater of Pain, so that they could get back on the road mm -hmm. you know, and support the album. I've got a phone ringing and a cat meowing, so I'm trying to concentrate here. <laughs> uh, and um, 
I, I you know, I, it, it's tough when bands have a big hit record and then they, uh, you know, the, uh, another tour is booked and they have uh, only a finite amount of time to write 12 new songs, mm-hmm. you know, really good ones. Cause they have to, they have to, um, you know, make something good after the first, after that big hit album, you don't want to fall flat on your face, right. but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stress and pressure there. And that of course can lead to self-medication. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Well, I mean, it's kind of the same thing with Van Halen, right? I mean, they came off those big tours and then Warner brothers was like, you need to put out a record now. And hence we got, you know, a pretty woman and all those covers on diver down. I, I guess technically theater pain would have technically been Motley Crue's diver down in a way. Um, I'm not really familiar with, with diver down, but it mm-hmm. wasn't the best of the three. Yeah. It was basically yeah. the same story. They had a hit record and Warner Brothers was like, you need to put out something now to follow this up. So they did like a record with like a couple of originals and a couple of covers. And, but Eddie Van Halen was pissed about it. Cause he's like, no, we could have wrote so much better songs. Had you given right. us the time. Right. Uh, I can understand. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we, I I had the same problem when, um, when I did dream police with cheap trick because Budokan exploded and we had 30 days to do the dream police album from setup to mastering. Wow. yeah, 30 days we did it in. And in those, you know, that doesn't sound like much these days, but in those days, you used to take two months to do a record. And, uh, you know, then it sat on the shelf mm-hmm. for eight months before they, before they released it, um, you know, because of Budokan. So um, I kind of, you know, I think Dream Police was a good album. Great album. Could have, could have been better, even better if we had a little more time, you know. Hmm. If you did have that time, what have you what different would you have done on that record? I mean, was it the songwriting aspect of it? Like what was it? Well, no, no, arrangements maybe um maybe better. You have to ask Rick about about that. I mean, he did a lot of arranging and he had string charts on there. Um I don't know, you know, just uh, more time, uh, you know, allows you to to, to experiment more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we we uh, we did some experimenting on the first on the first two albums on In Color and uh, Heaven Tonight. Right. Uh, you know, for different sounds um, here, we really didn't have a lot of time to fool around or, you know, I was looking at the, you know, at the calendar every day. Mm-hmm. So, geez we got to get this we got to get finished we got to do this so so you you know you 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 get an acceptable take and you take it you you right. you, you know you use it instead of saying well you know let's try this or let's try that or maybe you can do a little better mm-hmm. so. working with a band like cheap trick to me i mean when i think of them i just i picture the four guys on stage, you know, simplistic, but were they very experimental? Like, did they want to explore every avenue in the studio? Not, not really. Um, no more than Motley Crue, really. Mm. Uh, um, the, the, well, you know, Tom Peterson, is a very uh, unusual bass guitar collection. He played six string 
eight string, twelve string. He played, he played all kinds of basses. Um, we, you know, we did some some interesting stuff with, with, with um, you know, arrangements mostly. I mean, there was a lot of keyboard, which you know, which they didn't have when they walked into the studio or or have in the band. Um, Whose idea of, was the keyboard? You was the producer? Yeah, mostly. I would bring in uh, Jay Winding, at, you know, at the end, really. And mm. we would just color what what we had already recorded. Um, I would sing to him because I can't read or write music. So I, you know, I I kind of suggest a part and he would, you know, expand on it and... And it was good, and and Rick went went along with uh, you know with almost all of it. Some of it I did um, without the band because uh, they would go out and and have to tour. Right. Um, so you essentially we, become the fifth member of the band, making a decision like that. Like, well, yeah. I mean, you know, a producer is supposed to be pretty involved in the music so you know i didn't rewrite any lyrics but um you know arrangements and parts and uh, that's what it's all about mm -hmm. so i you know i used to do all the percussion myself um after everybody was gone you know i mean that you know the 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 uh hand percussion shakers and 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 tambourines and hand claps and things like that um, you know, so, so a producer is supposed to, is supposed to actually be involved, a good producer in basically every decision. Right. You know, if the band allows it and, you know, you, you know, I tried to collaborate. Um, there, there are some people, uh, you know, like Dee Snyder who insists that I was a dictator but you can't be a dictator if the band hires you, you know? They went I mean, in willingly. Yeah, they can hire you. They can fire you. So, um, you know, uh, you know, if a band 20 years later says, yeah, we didn't like, you know, the way the record was made, um, you know, you approved it. We, you know, you hired me. Why, if, if I did three records with you, why didn't, if you didn't like me, why didn't you fire me after the first one? Mm -hmm. So, you know, things like that. Things yeah, like it's that. weird that any artist would hold resentment towards you years later on. Because, I mean, like, at the time, they seemed to be pretty damn happy selling millions of records. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> things change. Things change. I mean, uh, you know, I, I got along well with uh, most of the bands. There were one or two individuals that presented issues. Um like Motley Crue, when, when, when they did, um, she's I can't even remember. <laughs> girls, girls, girls. No, after Girls, Girls, Girls. Kicks, oh, yeah, Dr. Feelgood. Okay. Yeah, when they did Dr. Feelgood, they, they had a record release party, and uh, they didn't even invite me. What? Which I think, I think was a little strange after, you know, after three, five, four or five years and three big albums. Yeah. And poised to be the biggest band in the country. And and I don't I didn't mind at all. Uh, and I understood exactly why they went to a, a different producer. You know, Jimmy Iveen said 
after three records, you should shoot your producer. <laughs> you know that that it's it's probably healthy to change mm -hmm. producers, especially after three records. Yeah, but but you know, gee whiz. Talking about Motley Crue, I mean, obviously they've been in, in the news a lot lately, and there's there's been so many stories that have come out about bands around that time where there's been a lot there's a lot of ghost players. I mean, like you know, Keith Scott from the Brian Adams Band was was Bob Rock's ghost player. He played on all the stuff secretly. Did you do any? Did you have to do any of that with the bands you worked with? Like, did Motley Crue like have any ghost guitar players or bassists come in? And not one, not one. We, um, I think we hired a an ex football player to um, wasn't in smoking in the boys' room. Uh, he was the one. He was he was the deep bass voice that smoking ain't allowed in school uh oh yeah but that was it i was uh, i really tried to um to use the bands and the bands only and i didn't i didn't hire a, a lot of session guys maybe five or six in 52 albums mm -hmm. um you know i i'd have a i had a, a harmonica player uh uh, come in actually Willie Nelson's harmonica player come in and do a couple of uh, parts uh, on the poison album mm -hmm. uh, I had a cello a cellist come in and do stuff on Alfeder's Dane by Cheat Crick um, rhythm rhythm stuff um, and Steve Lukather played the solo on voices for Cheat Crick Mm -hmm. And Jake Graydon played this uh, played lead guitar on uh, "I Want You to Want Me" the studio version, right? But I really, you know, I mean, bands like Poison they they all did uh, they all did their own stuff, no, no matter how long it took. And uh, this business about Nikki, uh, I, this has grown in, in the last year about Nikki not playing bass. Bullshit. He played every note. And he he may have said to Bob Rock, I don't know, I uh, you know maybe I wasn't there. Uh, it, I don't know how the bass parts got there. Maybe somebody came in, uh, you know, in secret at night and and replayed them. No, you know, Nikki Nikki played all the bass parts, and uh, he played the bass on Shout with his arm in a sling because he had rammed his car into a utility pole and like separated his shoulder. So even with injury, Nikki still yeah. played every bass note on those records. As far as I know. Yeah. And I was, uh, you know, I, I heard it go down on tape and then I heard it replayed and it was the same. Did Nikki play any guitars on those records at all? Or was it just all Mick? All Mick. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mick, one of the, one of whom I consider an underrated guitar player you know and he was well prepared we worked really well together he uh, you know he he had he had those really good rhythm guitar licks and then um we would work together on on fills afterward mm -hmm. even his guitar tone on like you know from shout of the devil all the way through to girls 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 i mean like it was wildly different i mean you went from a pretty straightforward martial sound to that modulated chorusy sound that was infamous for like the late 80s 
Where yeah. did that where did that sound come from? I mean, like, was that mix intention? Did he come in with that tone and said, This is how I want my guitars to sound, or was that no. a producer thing? Well, it's kind of. Uh, I think what made a big difference in the guitar sound between um, you know, Shout and and um girls was um the guitar tech. Um, uh, you know, he had a good one finally, and um I mean not that the early ones were not good, but this was the best. And, and um, I don't know what he did, but it made a difference. And uh, maybe it was, uh, maybe it was different amps um, or a different guitar, but that was the, um, you know, was people could say it's kind of corporate, mm -hmm. but I, I liked it. I, you know, I doubled all my rhythm guitars all the time. Oh yeah. And and um, because I, I wanted the rhythm guitar to be the backbone of the song to, you know, it's like uh, Casquatch Fever, you know, there, <laughs> without without that that rhythm guitar lick there, you know, there is no song. So that was the driving force behind behind songs as, as far as I was concerned. And um I really like the sound on on the song "Girls, Girls, Girls." Yeah, I actually like mix sound uh, without question uh, better on that album than than either of the first two. Talking about that a little bit, I mean, it's 1987, and you know, Mutt Lang is like the, one of the biggest producers in the world. Like, is everybody in the record label saying like? fuck, our records need to sound like Hysteria. Why don't they sound like Hysteria? Like, was there any pressure like or competition in that sense? Well, you know, uh, I always admired uh, Mutt's production. I mean, he was he was truly remarkable. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, no, I, I you know, we all had our um, our our, I think, special um, talents, special ways of doing things. And um, there wasn't any, I mean, I didn't feel any, any pressure or competition from, uh, from other producers. They, they were different. They did different types of bands. Um, as far as I want my record to sound like that, um, you know, I used to listen to stereo FM radio on the earphones when, you know, it, it, it like the, mid seventies. And when I started um, working with, with Ted Nugent, um, I, I would, I would hear WNEW FM and I, I'd say, boy, those, those records sure sound good. And then I'd play my mixes on my own, you know, machines, not hearing it on the radio. And I'd say, damn it. There, this just doesn't, this just doesn't have the zing that these records have. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, drive and pump and the, the, these, these, everybody else knows something I don't know about making records because the records I hear on the radio sound so much better. And then I finally heard um, one of Ted's cuts on the radio. And I said, Oh, Oh, I get mm -hmm. it. Cause it was compressors. Oh yeah. It was the compression that that you know they they broadcast through, and I said, "Wow, this this is really." I didn't mix this record, you know. <laughs> I mean, it sounded just next to next to the uh, 
the the you know the record player mix it it was superb right so that that happened and you know uh, there are song there are certain uh, records that uh, i think are you know brilliantly produced and there are others that that i would change mm-hmm. you know that i that i wouldn't leave alone that i would you know say well i i, I can't deal with that let's try it again so um, if you were gonna, if you were to go back and remix a couple of those records that you've done, I mean, like, would you, what would you do? Like, pe- pull back a little bit of that gated reverb on the snares and like modernize it. Like, do you think the gated reverb is a product of the time, or does it, it still sounds good today? Right? It, I think it still sounds yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, but you know, it's a it's a period piece. Mm-hmm. I mean, they certainly, you know, yes. if 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 you had had, um, you know, hard rock uh snare in in the in the 70s that that had no ambience no echo no room no nothing it's just flat like maybe uh you know um Stuart Copeland hmm. uh his snare uh it it just wouldn't it it wouldn't work it wouldn't fit with the song um there were certain things that we all did because there were certain tools available and we liked them, mm-hmm. you know, uh, then, yeah, you know, I mean, look what's happened now. You can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and they do. And it's funny. Cause like, you know, I, I didn't really like, you know, modern rock bands, like, you know, take like the struts for example, and they're not afraid to explore a little bit of that, like, you know, 80s style production, but then you listen to grid event fleet and it's literally yeah. Led Zeppelin. I mean, you know, Farthest yeah, away is. from any type of overmodulated, you know, process tones you can get. Well, that's you know that's why classic rock is so big. Yeah, it sounds you know? like an arena. I mean, there's a classic rock station in every town in the country, basically, and and kids know all about it. Mm-hmm. You know, my son growing up knew um, he he worked for Warner Records in L.A. in A and R. And uh, I mean, he knows in some cases more than I do about the music that we listened to or made in the 70s and 80s. And and, and he knows, you know, what happened before that and after that. So, you know, there, there are no, um, I don't think any kid who likes music, um, you know, and 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 has uh, access to 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 some streaming device uh, doesn't know about classic rock. Yeah. It's it's you know it's been codified, it's been uh, memorialized, it's been defined. Uh, you know, as um, a period kind of between um, the early '60s maybe and the early '90s, yeah. and it's over. You know, it's over. That's why it's called classic. <laughs> you know, that's it. You do you believe in the in the term? You know, rock is dead. It's been said so much over the years. But what do you think? Well, yeah, I don't think it's dead. I just think as 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 the the subtitle of the book says, the glory days. We, you know, we're back then. Um, there'll be, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's rock and roll. I am not, um, you know, I admit that I, I don't look for new music. Now, mm-hmm. I still listen to, 
you know, mostly music that was made before 1995, mm-hmm. except for maybe the foos right you know, nine inch nails and even yeah. they got a little i mean nine inch nails i mean come on talk about production <laughs> jeez yeah yeah but you know uh, what it's funny you mentioned those years because i find that those are the best sounding records i mean like you listen to the pop stuff like you know you, you put on how will i know by whitney houston and then you put that immediately followed by the weekend on f on z100 today like they sound pretty much like they could be from the same decade yeah yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm very familiar with how will I know, but, uh, but not, not the weekend. Yeah. Everybody on the pop music side, like everybody's gone back to the eighties with the Simmons drums and like, it's, yeah. it sounds like it's come from an Oberheim drum box. Like it's, it's, yeah, it's got that slick polished 80 sound. Uh, uh, of course, Tom, we're t- turn it up. My time making hit records in the glory days of rock music. It's going to be coming out in November. You can get it wherever you get your books. You said something interesting early on in the interview where you said that you don't read or write music. You barely play any instruments. Is that what made you a good producer in the sense? Well, I do play in, I, I do play guitar. Oh, OK. I, I did play guitar. Now I have no calluses and my fingers are fatter and the keyboard, <laughs> the, uh, you know. The just tear hooks. your fingertips apart if you grab it. Right. The necks are, are narrower. And, um, but uh, what was But do you think like, you know, like, I, like what makes a good producer in the sense? Like, is, is it like, are you a fan of the bands? Like, do you come from marketing? Like, because all the fans always say, oh, he's working with that producer. He's just going to ruin them. Or like it was something along those well, lines. Like, what makes a good producer? I, I think you know if you're involved in every, pretty much every decision. You know, picking the, um, um, selecting the material with with the band. You know, setting up properly, getting the right mics, getting the right snare head, um, positioning people, and you know, in the studio properly and. And uh, and arranging the songs that, you know, in rehearsal, you would we would change things and and try them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if we like them, we would uh, record the final version on a boom box and then take that into the studio and refer to it before we cut the real track. Um, you know, every really every single I, I was involved in, in pretty much every single uh part of the of the recording session and then the mix is just me and the engineer basically mm-hmm. and and that's the hardest part um you 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 know it, it's really you're the musical director that's it and and you know you, i mean you're like the director of of a of a movie you've got uh, all the responsibility and and uh, you're taking all these separate parts uh, and and putting them together and presenting them, uh, you know, as a piece of entertainment. Right. And uh, you know, I I did one movie, and I was um, I I always thought that uh, you know I I would say well you know being a record producer is not easy it's it, it's really tough it's there's more to it than most people think and then I I saw what a movie director had to do and <laughs> and I was I was really floored you know and I felt I felt like a one-celled animal because they they deal with like 200 people doing different things all at once and you know that that, that was something yeah. but yeah uh, you know people don't know what a producer is 
basically. I didn't know when I when I started listening to albums, I'd flip it over and it said produced by, and I, I wasn't sure what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'd say, well, I used to be a, a record producer, and people say, oh, who did you represent? Or, oh. or who did you manage? You know, or who did you promote? But not, oh, yeah. You you were the musical director. You were the guy in the control room who was you know who was sometimes calling the shots, sometimes just managing the you know the whole the whole musical effort. Right. Talking about the engineer, how important was just going back through like emails with you? I mean, like you you're not a gearhead. You didn't really know like the the tech of the time. Like, how important was it choosing the right engineer for those records to capture the sound that you heard in your hair and you heard in your head? It is critical. Um, you know, it's not, I didn't go to one engineer or another, uh, to get a specific sound or say, well, with this band, I should use this guy. I, I found early on, um, a great engineer, Gary, uh, Gary Ladinsky. We made 16, uh, records together, mostly at the record plant in LA. And then I, um, you know, I went to Jeff Workman, who was because uh, Gary left the business and he went into the equipment rental business. So mm-hmm. Jeff Workman did Shout at the Devil and Dockin' and oh God, I forget which I forget which, which albums he did. Oh yeah, well he did Twisted Sister with me, mm-hmm. and would you know he he turned out to be a you know a brilliant engineer and a and a personal disaster because he really was divisive and and would um you know you know he'd take the leader of the band aside tell him that i didn't know anything and that he was doing everything and really yeah yeah it was pretty bad um Hmm. and so i canned him and uh dwayne barron was my engineer for for a while and we made some really good records together with the crew and then um uh, Eddie Delena. So I had, I had four engineers. I depended totally on them. I, you know, I would s- turn to them and say, um, make it this a little more that, and they would do it. Mm-hmm. But, but I didn't touch the board until, uh, until the mix. And even then um, I would mostly just deal with volume with, you know, with the level of the faders. Yeah. Um, but it was all, I would tell the engineer what I wanted. He would make it happen. Mm-hmm. I knew what, what tools were available to us, you know, sound processing tools, but I didn't know how they worked. So, you know, could <laughs> right. you try to keep him quiet? <laughs> Is that the cat? It's a Siamese. They do uh. that. You know? no, I'd, I'd barely hear it, though. I, I wouldn't have noticed oh, yeah? it if it didn't say anything. Like, <laughs> Man, it's just driving me nuts. <laughs> Talking about that, though, it's you know, it's funny because you listen to, sh- like, Girls, 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 and the drums sound explosive, huge sounds like a stadium, and then you put on Stay Hungry, and, like, the drums, and we're not going to take it, they sound like Tupperware. I mean, like, so, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, the engineer plays a big part in it. Well, wait a minute. Uh, that was the same, it, it, you know, it was the same engineer. Oh, really? What was the what was the first album you said? I said Girls, Girls, Girls. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no that would have been different because you. I think I think you changed by then. Yeah, yeah. That was Dwayne. 
Um, you're right. Um, the um, I get I, I, chronologically they all they're all jumbled together now. Kind yeah. of in the Stay music. Hungry would have been like '84. That would have been like Shout at the Devil kind of time. And then like Girls was like '86 or '87. I think. Yeah, it was after. It, it was definitely. Yeah. I think. And it definitely sounds a lot more commercial, has more of a slick sound to it. Oh, it's also the drummer's drums. Mm -hmm. You you can't, you you can't really, I mean, there is some identity, you know, to, to drums. I mean, you listen to Keith Moon and then you listen to Ringo and uh, you can tell. Yeah. (laughs) Not just by the style, but, but, but by the sound, uh, the sound of the drums and the variety of the drums. Um, but even that, I mean, there was so much like processing done to the drums in the late 80s. Like you you take the drums on open up and say, ah, and girls, girls, girls. I mean, like that snare sound could have been a sample like that was blended in, but like with the two records, like, you know, did you do any of that? Like, did your mix engineer do anything like that? Like blend sounds like uh, like samples in and stuff? No, we used samples. Only. It was early for samples. And we uh uh, I, I used a few samples uh, with Tommy uh, on Wild Side. Okay. You know, uh, which which I I I love that track. I, I, it's a yeah, it's a brilliant, track. brilliant song. Yeah, uh, and great lyrics too. Mm-hmm. Really good lyrics. But um, yeah, we we did a couple of like we had a an, and Tommy was a real experimenter. He loved to uh, to to try new things. And so we had an anvil sound, like this big clank. Yes, that's right. And the ding, 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 ding. Yeah, it's got that sound. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, you know, and we did a few things uh, with that. Because uh, I guess Yes had come out with Owner of a Lonely Heart. And and they had those blasts of sampled orchestras in there. And, oh, yeah. And, and so, uh, you know... He was very enthusiastic about uh, about everything, actually, Tommy. Mm. And and you know, you you take a, the you know a, a, AJ the Twisted Sister drummer who, uh, and and then you put him next to Tommy Lee. Tommy was bombastic. He was strong. He was explosive. He 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 used to pound the drum, um, so you know he produced a different sound he produced a larger sound and uh you know that that was it and then and and then um bunny bunny carlos uh had had even even a different sound and then and then even going back to ted nugent um you know uh rick i can't even remember his name now it's terrible I can't remember the drummer's name. Cliff yeah. Davies. Cliff Davies. Mm. He um he had very you know he had a small sound really. It mm. was it was almost like a, a a British pop sound. It was very tight. Yeah, yeah. It was it was tight, and it wasn't it wasn't ambient. We didn't use a lot of uh, echo. It was the first song I ever mixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, Stranglehold. Um, it's a very revealing experience for for me, but you know, uh, you know, uh, the first record you you ever mix is not going to be as good as the thirtieth. So yeah, uh, you know, so so it didn't really uh, weaken Ted's sound. 
you know, or his musical delivery. No, because it actually made the guitars and him shine even more, right. I think. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I think I think, you know, different different strokes for different folks. You you've got Ringo, you've got Don Henley, you've got Mick Fleetwood, you've got Keith Moon. They're all you know, very, very uh, different, not only in style, but in the sound of their kit. Yeah. And each one works pretty well for each each of those bands. Yeah. I, you know, you couldn't put Ringo in the Who. Wouldn't nope. work. <laughs> no, you couldn't put Tommy Lee in the Beatles. I mean. <laughs> no, or Keith, or, or Keith uh, with the Eagles. <laughs> exactly. I mean, imagine that. <laughs> well, yeah. Let me just say, uh, for me, those late 80s records that you did, I think they just sort of shaped the sound for rock at the time. And like between the, the cannonball snare and the big guitars, I mean, like that to me is the sound of rock and roll. And uh, and you're just going to get so many great, incredible tales in this new book. Uh, make sure you go and pick it up. Turn it up. My time making hit records in the glory days of music. Tom Worman. You get it wherever you get your books. And uh, some of the great people you've worked with over the years, like Bunny Carlos, Ricky Rocket, they've done some uh give you some nice words on the book as well too so yeah a couple, couple of couple of blurbs couple of pats on the back that was that's very nice when they do that 20 years 30 years 40 years later yeah 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 th- yeah that's nice isn't it crazy to look back and think like shit that was almost like 40 years ago well yeah um i started in 75 so we're talking what almost 50 years ago yeah yeah, and they're still, you know, that's why classic rock is classic rock. I mean, you, you know, they still play it. They're still playing it. You walk into any, you know, pharmacy or grocery store, and they've got their playlist playing, and you, you know, you hear pretty much the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, there are these songs they call evergreens, right? They'll mm. they'll be they'll be classic rock forever. You know, there's you know Steely Dan and. And the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're there. I don't know when they'll, they'll stop being recognizable to music listeners, but the music listener audience has expanded hugely um, because of streaming. Yeah. Everybody in the world who has access to the internet can listen to any song they want anytime. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a shitload of yeah. songs of and listening then, i gotta say like it annoys me because I, I worked in pop radio for long and i still do like i do two d- daily fm radio shows that are like very very pop radio shows and then the podcast thing is sort of rock and country all over the place and like a friend of mine worked at uh like the biggest classic rock station in america for like 14 years who produced the morning show and i would always ask him like why doesn't q play you know more poison or more motley crew or you know, all that or more docking. And he'd be like, Oh, because like it, it, it doesn't blend in well with the cheap trick and the Fleetwood Mac and the Led Zeppelin and all that. And I was like, but that that's so weird though. Like it shouldn't like, so it's, it also comes to taste. So I, yeah, I, I love the fact that the audience gets to, gets to decide now, you know, I mean, like don't stop believing has like a billion streams or something down Spotify, but like a classic rock station can't not play that song. Right. regardless if a program director likes it or not yeah it's true that comes from the best i think that that album was the best bang for your buck 
um, ever made, pretty much, except for maybe the Beatles or the Stones. I mean, I think there were something like 10 huge hit singles on that record yeah. on Rumors. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So. Yeah, every single song of that, like it's it's like recognizable. Almost, almost every one. Now, is there even, is there any albums that you listen to even to today, and you're like, Shh, damn, like I wish I produced that one. Well, Eagles, uh, almost any album, because um, I was a I was a you know more a pop acoustic guy, mm-hmm. and they just kept making me do those very challenging bands, you know. And uh, you know, after uh, after Nugent, I was pigeonholed anyway um yeah um that's interesting that eliminator how how about zz top eliminator how about who's next how about uh abbey road (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. i mean it would have been it would have been just a wonderful thing i don't think many of those bands needed a producer you Mm -hmm. know but i mean there there were very few self-produced albums i think I think Huey Lewis and the News produced Sports by themselves, which is serious. Mm-hmm. That was a serious album. Um, but even that, like, say you were given the chance to do a record with the Eagles, like, what would you have done differently? N- well, not a whole lot. I mean, you know, e- there's not much deficiency in Joe Walsh's guitar playing. You, you know, no. or, 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 or Glenn, I worked with, I worked with Glenn Fry once, uh, you know, doing a novelty record actually, um, uh, with, with, uh, Jake Trout and the Flounders. Uh, it was a golf, <laughs> a golf record of Peter Jacobson's group. Anyway. So Glenn came in and, and we worked on his guitar solo and the lead guitar work on one song. And, um, you know, I, I, I thought, that I would demonstrate to him how careful I was and how, what a good ear I had. Mm. But he came in to listen to his performance. And I said, well, there are three spots that I think we should fix There's this, this, this. And he said, yeah, I had those. And, and then he had four more that I never heard. That I didn't hear at all that he just wanted to perfect. And he said, let's do this just in case Henley hears it. Um, wow. And I said, Oh yeah, well, gee, you know guy guy's good yeah a lot of the time the musician hears our we hear our mistakes before anybody else does also i mean like most self-critical right i mean like as most artists like kind of like most musicians are pretty self-conscious in their playing yeah i think so except maybe ted yeah ted ted doesn't give a fuck he's a little more con maybe a little more confident um eddie you know Eddie Van Halen, Joe. Well, uh, you would know, you have liked to work with Van Halen back in the Mike day? Campbell, I, I would like to have worked. I think I was really suited for Tom Petty. No, mm-hmm. I was. I, 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 you know, I think Van Halen's a, you know, kind of a. I don't know what Ted did with them. Uh, how much he, you know, he his input was, but um, Tom Petty, that band and those songs were meat and potatoes for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm right in there. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I, I could, the main thing I, I did honestly, what was um, make hit singles with, uh, with bands that needed to sell their albums. Um, you know, um, every rose has its thorn 
uh, was not a typical poison song. In, in, in you know, it it really um, it really stretched their uh, street credibility, I think, because I I threw everything but the kitchen sink into that song, oohs and ahs and synth pads and strings and you know. Um, but it did start and finish with an acoustic guitar and a vocal like 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 Pete Townsend does. Um, <laughs> Pete Townsend was my my mentor, really. I mean, my you know the model. I I I just think I think Who's Next is probably the best rock album ever made, um, next to Rocks, next to Aerosmith Rocks. Yeah. Uh, which which perhaps is the best American rock and roll rock hard rock album ever made, but yeah. Anyway, I'm and I'll going, tell you what I'm going off there. No, but look, I I just saw Brett Michaels literally last weekend, and yeah. w- when he pulled out the twelve string acoustic and hit that G, like people like just lose their mind every time. So yeah, he uses a twelve string to play that. Yeah, he uses a twelve string live. Huh? Because I because he played my guitar. On on the actual recording, it oh. was, it was a, a Guild D fifty five acoustic, you know, because um, he played it in in rehearsal. He said, "I have a song I want you to hear," so I handed him my guitar, and he strummed it and played. Every rose has its thorn, and I, I after I finished giggling and saying, "Oh boy, we you know we have a we have a hit single for the album." Um, I, I told him that I wanted him to play the uh, the basic rhythm guitar on it because he had a great feel and I liked I liked how that guitar sounded and that's what we did. That was the only thing that CC did not play mm-hmm. was the Ta- rhythm guitar on that song. Every rose has a thorn, and you know what? It's funny you say that because man, that guitar track has nothing but feel to it. Yeah. yeah well. It- you know what? What's his name? Um, you know, CC did did everything else. Yeah, he did. You know, he did. But yeah, uh, yeah, it was nice. <laughs> you know, the the Who also. I sorry, I keep bringing them up, but um, you know, Pete Townsend starts and finishes a lot of songs with um, just an acoustic guitar. A lot of songs that are hard banging rock songs. Uh, that they develop into that, like, you know, like the song is over. Anyway. Yeah. So, so it's funny you say that because I'm going to have to go back and listen to the who, because it's interesting you say that. Who's next Tommy and Quadrophenia for me and live at Leeds. um, Fantastic records. I'm going to pick those up on vinyl this weekend because of you. And I'm going to slap them on. Yeah. Yeah. Listen to who's next. There are only, there are six out of the nine are brilliant. The, the, there are nine songs on there, and, and six of them are just killer. I mean, you've got uh, Baba O'Reilly and and Won't Get Fooled Again. I mean, right there, it's, it's, it's like, you know, they're in the top 20 ever, yeah. I, I think. Uh, turn it up. We're running out of time here. Turn it up. My okay. time making hit records in the glory days of rock music. Tom Worman, make sure you go and pick it up. Just one last question. Controversial to the hang up question. Yes. Who who was the better guitar player in the studio? CC or Mick Mars? Completely different styles. Um, I would say Mick, uh, only because 
I was more fond of his, you know, what he produced from the guitar. Um, Cece was faster, I think, you know, more zany. But uh, Mick, Mick had some really wonderful licks, you know, just like Keith Richards came up with the best licks in the world for the Stones. Mick did that for, for Motley Crue. Mm-hmm. You know, Cece was also um, partying a whole lot dur- during that particular record. Mm-hmm. So that, that I think that interfered a little bit with his uh, with, with the results. Right. But he sounds great on the record. So, there talking you. about that, Mick Mars. I mean, like, do you think Molly Crew would have sounded the way they did if with, with another guitar player, or was Mick just integral to that sound? I think, I think you know, the drummer, the guitar player, um, yeah. And I, I, I think you can probably interchange bass players more easily than any of the other. You know the other musicians in in a rock and roll band. Um, it, in fact, it's happened a lot. You hardly knew when, uh, unless you paid close attention to to what they were playing. You hardly knew when uh, Bill Wyman left um, the you know the Stones, and uh, they're always substituting uh, bass players. You know, John Entwistle's absence made a difference, but you know. Yeah. Like if Motley brought in somebody like Jakey Lee or somebody like that, I, I, Motley would have just been totally different. Like maybe we would have no, not gotten the rift of Girls, Girls, Girls or Looks That Kill or Wild Side. Well, right. It it, it, it definitely wouldn't. Uh, there was Mick had a style and, and it worked. I mean, you know, the really good bands, they they're interlocking pieces that can't be traded, as we said earlier. You know, taking Keith Moon and putting him in the Eagles would not work. Yeah. Um, and vice versa. Don Henley and, you know, in the Who. I mean, that that's insane. So, you know, bands do get together and they'll shuffle personnel for a while and maybe say, you know, w- you know, you're fired. We want this guy instead. And, and they'll continue to improve the combination uh, until they're locked in. Um, there, I don't know um, how many bands I can't think off the top of my head. How many people get traded to other bands or leave to to join other bands, like baseball players? Yeah, you know, not many. <laughs> they should have a rock draft every year. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Take the worst band and let them have have first first choice. Yeah. Uh, look, this is so great. Uh, so many incredible tales. Uh, this book is just going to be so good. I got to preview it and uh, there's some good. great nope. stuff in there. Comes out around Thanksgiving. Fantastic. Go and pre-order it now. Go to your local, you know, Barnes and Noble, your Indigo, whatever it is, get and make sure you go pre-order, turn it up. My time making hit records in the glory days of rock music by Tom Worman. This is absolutely fantastic. So great to chat with you. We'll have to do this again. I'd love to. Thank you very much. It's been fun. An all-new episode of The Jeremy White Show. Available wherever you stream.